Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. And listeners, you sent in so many great questions last time that we are back for round two of Glad You Asked. Yeah, what a menu. Uh, You know, we always put out the call for questions on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. So if you want to submit a question for a future Glad You Asked episode, because there will not be a part three, be sure you're following us on one of those platforms. And uh, stop by our website, awordfitlyspoken.life, to get the direct links for each of our social media pages. Well, should we jump right into it, Michelle? Let's do it. All right, here's our first question, and uh, this one comes from a listener named Sydney, and she asks about personal prophecies given by prophets. She has those in uh, bunny ears there, quotation marks, and uh, she wants to know if those come to be true, are these from God or nope? Hi, Sydney. Uh, I would say nope. Um, Sorry about that. But even if a modern day prophet makes a prediction that happens to come true, this is not something that is from God. Why not? Well, because there are no modern day prophets, at least not from God. And if they're not sent from him, whom do you suppose is sending them? Well, turn with me to book the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is a very short verse, and, and this is one you might want to memorize. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So the real prophets that we read about in Scripture actually spoke for God. He would tell them, you know, to speak an oracle to a certain people group. And it was always God's words and not the prophet's words. And usually it had to do with God's warning to repent. Now, one of the challenges that we run into with, uh, you know, the word prophet today is that us evangelicals, we've uh, sort of redefined it to mean something other than how the Bible describes prophets. Some Christians say that a prophet is someone who gets a special word from God for you. You know, maybe it's a prediction about something good coming your way, like a new love interest or some kind of financial favor. They're rarely going to tell you that God wants you to repent. These so-called prophets won't point you to Christ. They point to themselves. They rarely ever tell you to test the spirits like the Bible tells us to do. In fact, the prophetic predictions are so vague that there's really no way to test them. That's on purpose, by the way, so that they can point to your good fortune and say, See, I told you that was going to happen. That is actually called the Barnum effect. I call it the fortune cookie effect. You know, your tall, dark stranger will come into your life. It's the same thing. Now, some other people believe that they have an inkling about some future event that maybe isn't for you, but the whole world. You know, it could be a a big cataclysmic event like a disaster or the return of Jesus even. You know, they just have this feeling that perhaps next spring or sometime next winter, something huge is going to happen. Now, again, if something happens, it's not because someone could feel it. Remember that Jesus told his followers that no one knows the day or hour of his return. And the Father certainly is not making exceptions for your church friends or that guy on TBN, right? Others say that uh, this a, a prophet is somebody who has the gift of being able to recall just the right scripture verse for a particular situation you might be going through. Now, does the Holy Spirit help our minds recall scripture verses that we've learned? 
Well, absolutely he does. This is wisdom as we grow in maturity in the Word of God. But is that really the gift of prophecy? Well, no, not the way the Bible defines prophecy and prophets. What does the Bible say about prophets? Well, in the Old Testament, there were more than 133 named prophets, and there were prophets in the early church as well. But remember, the early Christians did not have the complete Bible like we do today. The last book of the New Testament, Revelation, was not completed until late in the first century, so the Lord sent prophets in those days to proclaim God's word to his people. Now, like I said, today we do have the complete Bible. Everything God wants you to know about how to live this Christian life, how to be aware of what will happen in the future, like <clears throat> cough, cough, the warning that false prophets will be plentiful, these are all in the completed canon of Scripture, all breathed out by the Holy Spirit. If indeed the self-titled prophets of today are as valid as the ones God anointed in the Old Testament, well then verses like Deuteronomy 18.22 and Jeremiah 28.9 both say that the prophets in the Bible had to be 100% accurate with all of their prophecies, not just one or two, and if they weren't, they were put to death. That is how seriously God takes anyone claiming to speak for him, claiming, thus saith the Lord, right? So again, if they are accurate in one thing, but not in the others, they're still false. It's just that they got lucky one time, for a lack of a better word, lucky, right? So on Judgment Day, Michelle, their luck will run out. What do you think? Yeah, I I totally agree with you. Definitely nope on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't, don't listen to, to yeah. people like that who tell you that they can uh, prophesy, even if what they say comes true. Um, I, I just wanted to read another passage that I don't, I'm not sure if we've touched on recently, but Deuteronomy 13, one through five says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord, your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your mm -hmm. soul. You shall walk after the Lord and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord, your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, it's it talks about this prophet who gives a prophecy and it comes true but he is leading you to worship false gods and i would say that there are not any streams of christianity today that i'm aware of who are doing prophecy making prophecies but are not pointing to a false god they may call their false god jesus but right. it's not the jesus of the bible and so i would say that this you know certainly we don't put people to death today for for things like this but i i think this really otherwise holds true for false prophets today um we also want you to know that we um 
If you haven't listened to it yet, we want you to go listen to our episode uh, that was an interview with Jim Osman. It was called uh, God Doesn't Whisper, and it was all about extra biblical revelation. Mm -hmm. So we want you to go listen to that, and that'll give you some good teaching as well on this topic. So those are my thoughts on that for that uh, topic. I think you answered it really well, Amy. Yeah, good thoughts. Well, our next (laughs) question is from an anonymous follower who sent us a DM at our Award Fitly Spoken Instagram. And here's what she says. She says, my daughter and her husband have two children ages five and seven. These two darling grands of mine whine, fuss, complain, talk back, etc. most of the time, except when I'm with them alone. And then they're good and so much fun. Here's my question. What role do I play in all of this? Can I get involved? Is there a boundary that can't be crossed? It's not very enjoyable to go visiting because of the constant whining. The parent's response to them is, I know you have big feelings right now. Take a deep breath and think of a better way to respond. I have nine other grands that are a delight to be around. As a grandma, what can I do? Or do I just pray? Well, that's that's a tough one. Um, you know, Amy, I've, I've really been thinking lately, this whole worldly <laughs> paradigm yeah. of grandparents just spoiling their grandchildren and not having any rules and all of that. That's just not godly. I mean, grandparenting is different from parenting in many ways. But one thing grandparenting isn't is just letting your grandchildren run wild and indulging their every whim and and not having any rules, especially if, if they visit you often or if you're babysitting for them on a regular basis. You just can't have that. It'll just all be chaos. So to our listener, here are my thoughts. Number one, when your grandchildren visit you, keep having fun with them, but also keep enforcing your rules. You know, it's your house, your rules. And also, that's almost certainly why they're pleasant to be around when they're with you, but not when they're with their parents. That's just how children are. They they know what they can and can't get away with and with whom. Also, assuming it's okay with your daughter and her husband, teach your grandchildren to memorize some Bible verses that apply to their behavior. Maybe make it fun with a a small prize every time they memorize a verse and recite and discuss those verses with them every time they misbehave. Here are a few you could start with. Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So you hear some complaining, you know, say that verse with your grandchild and and then maybe ask, you know, you want to be a light shining in the world, right? Because that's exciting. Uh, And then, you know, so tell them it's important to obey God and not grumble or complain uh, or something along those lines. Then Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, this is Ephesians 6, 1 is the first Bible verse any of my children memorized because this was an important one in our house. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And when you teach your grandchildren this verse, you might want to explain to them that When this was written, grandparents often lived with the nuclear family, with mom and dad and the kids. So this admonition to obey the parents extended to the grandparents as well. Then there's Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. 
Don't you want to be a wise son or wise daughter if it's a girl? Or do you want to be a foolish son or a, a foolish daughter? You want to be wise and make mom and dad glad, right? Is what you just did wise or foolish? What would have been the wise thing to do? You know, things like that. And then finally, Proverbs 23, 24 through 25. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So, you know, let's make mom and dad rejoice and be glad in you by being a wise son or wise daughter who doesn't act that way. You know, just those kinds of things. Just catechize them with scripture in their behavior. And then this one, this suggestion here, this is really going to depend on the kind of relationship that you have with your daughter. If the two of you are very close and she has sought out and appreciated your advice on other things in the past, you can very gently say something like, honey, I've noticed that Ruby and Robert can be a handful at times. And I completely respect that you and Tom are their parents and I don't want to overstep in any way. But God taught me so many valuable things while I was raising you that I think might make things easier for you. If you'd ever be interested in a few helpful hints, I would be glad to share them. But if not, that's okay too. Now, the thing is, you have to mean that. If she says, I'm not interested, then you have to back off and keep your mouth shut. If she is interested, well, you still can't take that as an open invitation to critique everything she says and does with the children. Offer advice as sparingly as possible and encourage and affirm your daughter and her husband when they handle a situation well. Maybe even invite your daughter and the kids over to your house once in a while, explaining to the kids that mom is only there as a silent observer and that they're to pretend like she's invisible. Grandma's in charge. And then let your daughter watch how you handle things. Maybe she'll pick up a few ideas. And then, yes, to answer your question, pray, pray, pray. <laughs> yes. Amy, do you have any thoughts to add? Uh, that was such excellent advice, Michelle. I know I, I always say, you're right, Michelle. I love everything you just said. <laughs> and I do. I, it's just perfect. Um, I, and it's just so interesting that children seem to do well with boundaries. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you lay down, you know, this is right and this is wrong and, and this is where I want you to behave. And they seem to, that's why they're pleasant is because they don't have the opportunity uh, to whine then. So mm-hmm. I just remember, you know, being with my own grandparents and they laid down the law as well. They weren't horribly strict or anything and we had a lot of fun, but there were lines I knew that I couldn't cross. And one of those lines is I could not whine and I could not talk back. That's sassing. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't sass your elders. That's, uh, in other words, biblically, that's rebellion, that's foolishness. And so um, if a parent is allowing a child to be rebellious and foolish, that's the kind of adult those kids will be, and it'll be yeah. impossible. You have to catch that, you know, and, and it's never too late, never too late. Right. So I'm really glad you said, you know, keep those boundaries going with grandma's house because it, it is her house, her rules, um, you know, and, and I, I understand when um, the, the ways of this world, the carnal ways of, you know, I, I know you have big feelings, honey. Yeah, that that serves no one. It really doesn't. Right. Um, 
I don't know where those thoughts come from. Well, we do know where those thoughts come from, but uh, <laughs> it's been the teaching, though, for a very long time. And and look how things are in schools and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you can see in, in churches, too, even which kids have, you know, that discipline and which ones don't. So, um, yeah, I just uh, it, I appreciate the challenge that Anonymous has here. Uh, it, it's not easy, but uh, it's not impossible either. And it, it actually can be an exciting opportunity to uh, to help those kids with their boundaries. So love the scripture you shared. All right, let's go to uh, another question here. This one comes from Anna, who writes, I do have a question about the GOP candidates. In watching the GOP debate, every one of the candidates supported abortion. Well, some supported a six-week cutoff for abortion, but most seem to support a 15-week cutoff for abortion. I see abortion as the murder of the most innocent among us. How can we as Christians in good conscience vote for any of these candidates? But if we don't vote, we will have someone far worse in office like we do than we do now or like we do now, uh, people that support abortion right up until the moment of birth. Any scriptural guidance on this would be appreciated. God bless you both and thank you for all you do and I am glad you all are back. <laughs> well, thanks, Anna. We are so glad to be back as well. And you know what? You are so right about the cutoff for abortion. You know, the, the so-called pro-life bills designed to protect babies after, say, nine, seven, or five weeks or, or after a, a detectable heartbeat still allows younger babies to be executed. And that's just the fact. A human life is a life created by God in his own image. And the Bible tells us this over and over again. Each and every precious soul was created before the foundations of the earth were even laid. That's why Michelle and I are are what we call abolitionists. And Anna, it sounds like you are too. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with that word, what is an abolitionist? Well, it's someone just who, who believes that all abortion is murder and should be outlawed or abolished completely under any and every circumstance. Now, this may not be a popular position, but it is the biblical one. You know, the opposite would be someone who is an incrementalist, someone who believes that we can push back the legal uh, boundaries and have, you know, small wins here or there for the pro-life side little by little. Well, let me ask you, listeners, how is that battle going? Have those lines actually moved all the way to the area where abortion is being ended? That's what we all want, right? Or does the evil practice continue to gain ground and lose ground here and there, depending on, you know, the season and which way the wind is blowing? Now, I know Michelle can talk about what happened in her home state of Louisiana when pro-life groups voted against a bill that would have actually outlawed abortions for good. Those are pro-life people that did this. So when politicians are incrementalists, it really puts us all in a bit of a bind when it comes to election day. We all want the good side to win. But sometimes the so-called good side compromises to the peril of little lives. So if you vote for that candidate, the abortion battle just rages on and on and on. It never stops. So don't vote for that candidate. That's my solution. Do not vote for that candidate. Either find one who is an abolitionist or don't vote at all. Ooh, did you hear those heads exploding, Michelle? (laughs) Don't vote at all. Yeah, well, remember, ladies, you don't have to vote. I know that sounds really strange because, you know, some Christians will say that you must, you absolutely must vote. 
But when it comes to elections and in God's eyes, you are only required to glorify God. And you can vote for a third party or write in a candidate that you know will stand for life, for real. Michelle, any thoughts to add? Well, like we always say, Amy, I disagree with everything that you said, (laughs) like you were talking about before, but it's really true. I mean, everything you said is so true. And um, the only thoughts that I would add are, first of all, to reinforce what you said about that you don't have to vote if if you you really don't want to sin against your conscience. Don't do that. Um, If you're the only choices that you have are two candidates or however many candidates that um, you feel like you would be sinning against your conscience if you voted for any of them. There's no law that says you have, have to vote. And there's also nothing right. in scripture that says you have to vote. Scripture doesn't even talk about voting. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so that's something to think about. Uh, another thing, just some, maybe some practical advice. I would wait until the field is whittled down to one candidate and then decide whether or not you can in good conscience vote for him. It's really early to be worrying about this right now because, um, you know, all we're and worrying about where all the potential candidates stand right now because only one of them is going to be the nominee. And I'm, you know, I'm talking in this direction because you asked specifically about the GOP. So I really, I honestly, we're not supposed to worry anyway, but I would not put a whole lot of thought, you know, time and energy into thinking about uh, where all these candidates stand right now because only one of them is going to be the nominee. Um, but you may want to look into some third, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, tenth party candidates uh, and see if there's anybody running who is an abolitionist. That would certainly be something I, I would consider is voting uh, for, you know, not for one of the two major parties, but somebody who's of a different party or yeah. independent or something like that. I think a lot more Christians are going to be considering that um, this election. Um so that's that's one thing I would say. Another thing at this point, questions about, you know, an X number of weeks ban on abortion. It's still relevant. But the question we really need to start asking is, will you ban all abortifacient pills like Plan B and all of that stuff? Those abortion pills are already starting to outpace surgical abortions. Uh, even if surgical abortions and pills are illegal in your state, you can still order them through the mail. And that's what a lot of people are doing. These women are ordering these medications through the mail and killing their babies at home themselves. And it's also, it's not only is that tragic and horrible and sinful and evil, but it's also very dangerous to the woman because she's not under medical supervision. And so it's just a really bad situation all the way around. So at some point, you know, this this question of an X number of weeks ban is going to be nearly irrelevant at some time in the future. Um, But I would also say that if you're really conflicted about who to vote for, there's a fantastic benefit here for married women. If your husband is a believer, ask him who you should vote for or whether you should vote. Uh, I mean, you should really ask him regardless, but but especially in this situation, if you just you're so conflicted, you don't know what to do. Ask him, trust him and trust God with your submission and stop worrying about it. And then you can also trust God's sovereignty over elections. You know, God's not going to put anybody in the White House that he doesn't want to win, either for our good or for our judgment. So God is in control of that. We steward our votes the best way we know how in order to honor him. But 
he he is the one who puts kings and rulers in office, not not us. So um, you can trust that whatever he does, it's going to be right. So that's that's all I would add there. Yeah. Well, our next question comes from another DM to our Award Fitly Spoken Instagram from an anonymous follower. And she asks, is it okay for a woman to read a Bible passage, not explain or expound on it, not teach, but is it okay for her to read a Bible passage during the worship service to the whole congregation on Sunday? I have 1 Timothy 2.11 in mind for this topic, but what other passages should I be thinking about? All right, let me start off with two things here. First, I'm, I'm often asked this very same question about whether or not women should lead the congregation in prayer during the worship service. And so the answer I'm about to give is basically the same as the answer I would give to that. So if you're wondering about that, basically the same answer. And then second, the answer I'm about to give is excerpted from my article titled Rock Your Role FAQs that answers a bunch of questions about women and their role in the church and, and different ways we can serve in the church and things like that. So we will have that in the show notes for you if, in case you have any more questions or in case you want to read the entire uh, answer to this question. So to answer our listener, you know, uh, you're right you know, in the right neighborhood of scripture, but 1 Timothy 2.11 taken in context with verse 12 technically isn't about a woman simply reading a passage of scripture aloud during the worship service. So let's listen to what these verses say they're they're connected to each other so let's let's hear what they say it says let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness i do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet so these verses are saying that women are to be in the position of learner in the gathering of the whole body not teacher not an authority over the church and I know some of our listeners are probably also thinking about 1 Corinthians 14. Same basic idea. That whole chapter is about keeping order and preventing chaos in the worship service so that the word can be preached and the church built up. It is not about a woman reading a passage of scripture when asked to by her pastor in an orderly worship service. So while it's not technically a violation of the letter of the law in either of those passages, because those passages are both about something else, I would still discourage it on the basis of wisdom and the spirit of the law for several reasons. First of all, in the times that we live in where so many women and their churches are in rebellion against the biblical role of women in the church, having a woman lead prayer or read scripture from the pulpit or platform may send a message to visitors and to church members that your church doesn't want to send. In other words, we're egalitarian. Uh, it could also cause unnecessary division. So why put an unnecessary stumbling block in front of your visitors or members? So that's number one. And also on that same note, as a church member, you should take note if your church has a good track record and a good history of male leadership, and then all of a sudden starts having women pray or read scripture from the platform during the worship service. This could be, not necessarily, but it could be the first sign that your church's leadership wants to move in a more egalitarian direction, and they're trying to slowly ease the church body into it. So if that suddenly starts happening at your church, set up an appointment with your pastor to kindly ask him about it. 
And then second reason, there seems to be a tragic dearth of male leadership in the church in general. So many men are either too lazy or too afraid to lead, or they see very few examples of what leadership by a godly man looks like. I think it would be a great idea for the pastor or you know, to sometimes ask men who need to learn leadership skills to dip a toe in the water by leading a prayer or reading a scripture during uh, the worship service. And then at other times, ask a spiritually mature man to model leadership skills by leading a prayer or reading scripture during worship. Sometimes these kinds of situations aren't really about women's roles, but they're really more about men's needs. What do you think, Amy? Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, I'm one of those people who does feel uh, uncomfortable if I am at a church service and I hear a woman read scripture, you know, maybe maybe the yeah. song, you know, they're playing the, they, they've been playing a hymn, maybe it's scripturally sound church, and then all of a sudden you, you hear the musical interlude and the woman starts reading scripture. I do feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable about that, you know, with that. And um, yeah. I, I'm in a place now where I, that doesn't happen in a, in the church that we go to, but uh, but I have been part of churches where where that has happened, and uh, it, it is it 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 just makes me feel really I guess itchy, <laughs> you know. So uh, I just uh, I I feel like uh, you know I what you just said is is true that that you know letter of the law, um, it's probably okay. But again, it it sends a message, and it does make people, right. we don't want it we don't want people to have those questions about our wisdom, you know, when we're, when we're presenting, uh, what should be a time of orderly worship and, you know, and to make sure that, that people don't have those questions. Uh, you know, if you, if you can avoid any kind of a confusion, um, I, I'm all for that. So, (laughs) so there you go. Um, well, let's go on to the next question. Now, this one is from Brenda and she asks this question. Uh, what are the potential challenges a biblical church faces if it's growing with so many new people since COVID? So, for instance, 25% more or 50% more people attending. Great question and a great problem to have. Um, and like you said, and it's not even a premise. You you even stated the premises that this is happening in churches that are biblically solid. You know, it can happen in, in all sorts of churches. And, and we know that the popular seeker uh, churches, based on carnal church growth models will always have those big numbers but you know let's for now put those aside and talk about these churches like Brenda asked about that are doing what they should be doing and they're experiencing growth you know what are some churches doing and and why are they growing post covid well there's probably a lot of different reasons but i believe people are you know really seeing this world growing darker and the lies uh, from Uh, everywhere from the government to schools to even some celebrity church leaders that they're hearing just they're they're just getting so much darker and another reason could be the fear of what's happening in the economy you know things are shaky or the rise of anxiety that people are feeling and the mental health issues and stresses and especially the explosion of violent acts that we're seeing every day in the news and you know people whether professing believers or not they are looking for truth they they really want to see past you know the sound bites and the fake news they want to know what the truth is and if your solid church has been sticking to scriptural expositional preaching and dedication to um, studying the word of god you may be noticing that the pews are starting to fill up and staffers might be you know scrambling to find those metal folding chairs and extra hymnals um, and that's really 
a, a good thing and that that's healthy. And that's when leaders need to start talking about, you know, how, if this is going to be a trend, how can staff effectively bring these people into the fold? You know, there's always going to be visitors who come and go, but there ought to be an emphasis on bringing people into membership and then feeding the flock and not on how in the world we're going to afford a new church building or something like that. Um, a few years ago, this is kind of interesting, I was I was watching a lecture on video by Pastor Vody Bauckham, who said that he never wanted his church to grow past, I think the number was 175, might have even been 75, it was something really small uh, and of membership, including children. So you can imagine some of the bigger families would take up those numbers. And um, he said that once that happened, he would always encourage church planting, always with the idea that, you know, the new church would be led by qualified men to preach and eld, in other words, elders. Uh, But there's a good reason for that. Uh, Churches that are too big really lose the ability to be able to effectively minister and feed the flock. And it's very hard to have your church family grow to a point where you actually, you know, are familiar with and know every member. If you get beyond that and you don't know your own flock, that's tough. And I've been in churches like that. If you're not as an individual involved in a small group for fellowship and study, you're more likely to be that lone ranger in a sea of unfamiliar faces. And guess what? It's easier to hide your sin or your unbiblical beliefs because no one's going to hold you accountable if they don't know you. That's not church, right? (laughs) The real purpose for church can be found in Acts 2.42, where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So according to this verse, the purposes and activities of the church should be, one, teaching biblical doctrine, two, providing a place of fellowship for believers, uh, thirdly, observing the Lord's Supper, and four, praying. And if your church is able to keep up with all of that and being able to minister to people without uh, people getting lost or not fellowshipping or, you know, being able to hide their sin and the vastness of being anonymous, well, that's great. And that's that's, uh, really good and healthy. And then, yeah, make a plan to grow. What are your thoughts, Michelle? Well, once again, I'm just in complete agreement with you. Um, there, there's a lot of challenges that churches are facing after after COVID. I know my church has grown quite a bit after COVID, yeah. and uh, you know one of the one of the things that you can face this is not happening at my church, but one of the things that you might face is that longstanding members get territorial, you know, with all these new people coming in, you know, somebody's sitting in my pew, you know, or we've always, you know, we've got this great program over here. We've always done this program this particular way, but now we have to accommodate a lot more people. So how are we going to do this? Or, you know, we've always done this, this program over here this way, but now these new people are bringing in new ideas of how to do things. And, you know, we've always done things this other way. So there can be a little friction there at times. We just need to be really hospitable and really um, unselfish and and flexible (laughs) uh, when there's a big influx of new people. But I really want to go back to what you're saying, saying about church planting. A lot of times what will happen with some of these churches that have grown so much after COVID is that they've grown too large for their church building. And now they're having to choose between going to two services or maybe even going to three services or make a choice between doing that or planting a new church. And I just want to put in a, a plea here. Please plant new churches. 
I hear from women every, well, almost every day that they're looking for a solid church in their area and they can't find one, maybe because they live in a rural area or something like that. Uh, There's a lot of uh, places overseas that don't have good churches as well. And so please, if your church is getting big, please talk to your pastor or, you know, uh, consider planting a new church. Go, go an hour or two down the road, go overseas, do whatever you've got to do, but plant new churches because there are so many people out there who need good churches to attend and there just aren't enough. Um, and then another challenge that I thought of was that if you don't have a good membership process where the pastors and the elders make sure that potential members are regenerate and doctrinally sound, you might have new people bringing in and sharing unbiblical doctrine. Um, I know we have a really yeah. good process at my church where our pastors you know, have a good idea of where people stand when they're going through the membership process. And, and they know whether these people maybe need more teaching or more things explained to them before they actually become members and, and things of this nature. Make sure your church has a good, staunch membership process and that they're not just waving every Tom, Dick and Harry in the door. Um, probably they aren't because you meant, like Amy said, you mentioned this is, a, these are doctrinally sound churches and doctrinally sound churches tend to, tend to guard those doors a little more carefully. So that's something to, to think about as well. Those are just some thoughts that I had. Okie dokie. Our last question of the night is from a DM to my Instagram my personal Instagram. And she says, I'm struggling with my quiet time. I would love to hear what yours looks like. And do you have any tips for staying focused during Bible reading? Well, yes, I think we do. I think we can accommodate you with that. (laughs) First of all, we want to send you to an episode that we recorded a while back called how to study the Bible and how not to. And we've got the link for you for that in the show notes. Um, My quiet time has looked different at various seasons of my life. Uh, In the past, I've used what I call canned studies, you know, workbooks and DVDs and things of this nature. I did give that up quite a long time ago and, and exclusively study straight from the text of scripture now. And I can't recommend that highly enough. Um, even, you know, there, there are a few good solid Bible studies out there that, you know, that are workbooks or books or whatever. But if you've never studied straight from the text of scripture, you put all those books and materials aside for six months or a year and try just studying straight from the text of scripture and see if you don't like that better. Uh, There's nothing wrong with doctrinally sound books and workbooks, but I highly recommend that you do most of your studying straight from the text of scripture. So that's what I do. Um, There there have been times during my quiet time when I've read through the Bible in a year, and there are times when I've picked a particular book of the Bible to slowly savor and study at my own pace. And then when I finish that one, I'll just go to whatever book I want to do next. And so both of those are valuable. Sometimes when I write a Bible study, I'll study that book during my quiet time before and while I'm writing it. So those are those are some of the things that I've done in the past. Here's what I'm doing right now. And this, you know, depending on when we post this episode, this might even change before we post this episode. But as we're recording this, here's what I do right now. 
weekdays, I get up at six in the morning and not because I'm a morning person, believe me, because I'm not, but because I'm, I'm so busy. That's just the time that I have to get up to fit everything in. So I get up at six. Uh, everybody else is still asleep or at work or whatever. I grab my coffee and I go sit in my comfy chair and I have my prayer time. So as, as I'm doing this, you know, I'm still trying to wake up because I don't wake up very quickly and easily. <laughs> but uh, what I do for my prayer time is I start off by singing a hymn. And if you follow me on Twitter, or excuse me, if you follow me on X, I guess it's now called, and you see the hymn lyrics that I post every day, that's from the hymn that I sang that morning. So I start off with a hymn and then I pray until about seven. And then I get up and I let the dog out and feed her and I get more coffee <laughs> and I fix my husband's coffee and I take that to him and wake <laughs> him up. And then I have my Bible study time until about eight in the morning. Right now, what I'm doing is I'm just studying whatever's the next passage in Exodus that the sermon is going to be about on Sunday. And then the next passage in Hebrews that the, our Sunday school lesson is going to be on. And also our pastor is having us read a book in our discipleship groups and I lead one of those groups. So I might spend some time on reading a little portion of that one or two days of the week. And then later in the day, shout out to our friend, Pastor Gabriel Hughes. I often listen to his, uh, his excellent Bible study podcast. It's called When We Understand the Text, WWUTT. And as we're recording this episode, Gabe is teaching through Matthew Monday through Wednesdays and Isaiah on Thursdays. And then on Fridays, he and Becky take questions from the listeners. And many of those are about passages of scripture. So that's scripture learning as well. But he's also spending a few minutes in the Psalms to get things kicked off on Fridays. So highly recommended that you listen to Gabe's podcast there, not to replace your time studying the word, but to supplement it. So go look for WWUTT on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. So I consider that part of my quiet time as well. All right, so that's weekdays. Now, brace yourselves, ladies. I know this is going to horrify many of you, but I do not have a quiet time on Saturday or Sunday. Sunday, I'm in church learning or teaching the word most of the day, and Saturdays, I just don't. So tips for staying focused. That's a great question, too. Honestly, as a wife and a mom, I would recommend doing your quiet time while everyone else is asleep or out of the house. If other people are awake in the house, you're going to get distracted by them somehow. I guarantee it. So try to do it when people are all asleep or all out of the house or something like that. Uh, next, get away from your phone. Turn it off. Leave it in the other room. Whatever you have to do. If you're distracted by noise, get a good white noise app and some noise canceling earbuds. Uh, put your phone on airplane mode so you won't be distracted by it and turn that app on and just drown out the world. The world. Sometimes I'll get distracted because things will pop into my head that I need to be sure to remember. So you might want to keep a pen and paper nearby to jot those things down quickly and then get back to praying or studying so that those trying to remember those things don't continue to distract you. Um, some people seem not to be able to do anything without some sort of background noise going on, like the TV or music or whatever. I would encourage you to break that habit in general, but certainly break it during your quiet time. You know, there's a reason it's called your quiet time, 
because it's supposed to be quiet. So you don't need to have background noise on. And then above all, pray about it. Confess your weakness of distraction to the Lord and ask him to help you to focus 15 times during your prayer time if you, or in your quiet time if you have to. Ask him as, as much as you have to, to ask to ask him to help you. So how about you, Amy? What does your daily quiet time look like? And do you have any tips for this listener? Well, um, I, you know, I, I really appreciated you sharing all of that. Um, mine looks different every day. And it's the busyness of the day sometimes catches up with me. So sometimes it's late at night after people have gone to bed. And so I, I do recommend being quiet. Like you said, turn the phone off. Um, if you have a computer on nearby and you get alerts, oh boy, can that distract you. And um, I, I heard it said that if you, once you're deep in study, if something distracts you, it takes you a long time. I can't remember what the exact time was, at least 10 minutes to get back to that place you were of deep concentration on whatever it was that you were uh, studying. And for me right now, uh, I am actually looking back at Ecclesiastes every once in a while. I come back to that and I don't know why. I just, uh, I'm attracted to that one. I just, I find great comfort in, in knowing what this writer went through um, in his time looking back on his life. And and we know who that is, you know, King Solomon. And it just, it, it's just very interesting to me. But uh, I've also just finished up being in Romans for a little bit. And I, I don't do as well going uh, through the Bible in a year, like at your, you know, some of those programs, uh, just because I feel like I get off track some days and uh, then I feel like I can't pick back up again. But I do like daily devotionals and those kind of things. If they're scriptural, if, if, in other words, if they're not somebody else's thoughts or, you know, talking about mess or junk in the trunk or whatever it is they're talking about. I, I departed from those long, long, long ago, but, um, I really like the ones that take you through a planned Bible study. I know, uh, MacArthur has a good one where you're, you're reading passages, um, selected passages from the word, and then you go back and read something from the old Testament that, that marries up. And, uh, I really like those. Um, I do have a, a book recommendation. I picked this up mm -hmm. at a conference a while back, and it's called mm -hmm. How to Eat Your Bible, and it's by an author named Nate Pickowitz. And I really like this. It's very simple. It, it just talks about how to study and learn and have a love for the Word of God. So it's a great book. We'll put a little link there uh, in the show notes if you're interested. It's very short. And he talks about, the, uh, has a seven-year Bible plan in there so you can apply what you've learned. So um, that's very helpful as well. My, my habits aren't as... What's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't have the ritual where I'm the same time every day. And uh, I, I do jump around in scripture. I don't go from one chapter uh, consecutively to the next. So, uh, but uh, I love being in the word of God. And Michelle knows this too, that I also love listening to the word of God being read to me. Um, just love that, especially late at night. Uh, I'm of a certain age where I'm, I'm up a few times in the night and it's so comforting to wake up and hear uh, God's word speaking to me. Now, that That's the one time that you can trust the word of God audibly <laughs> is when you leave your Bible on. So, and I, I do, it's, it's, it's funny because sometimes I'll wake up Michelle and it'll be just the perfect passage and it is speaking right to my heart. So, uh, love that. And uh, uh, there's a, a Bible app called, I, I think it's just called the ESV. 
Bible app and it has some good, mm-hmm. uh, you, can, you can read it and have it read to you by a gentleman who has a, a beautiful reading voice. You know, you can avoid other ones like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't do the Bible reading app ones because that's Craig Rochelle's, uh, well, well, we'll put some links in there to some, some things. It, it's one of those where pick your Bible app, but don't pick the ones with Jesus Calling or any of those other uh, devotionals from questionable characters. Totally so, agree. Yeah. What What do you think, Michelle? You can. There's so many different ways to study the word, and uh, pick what works. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think you just have to do what works for you. You know, if if you're if reading through the Bible in a year works for you, that's great. If that's if that just makes you nervous or it's too much structure and you you need a more freestyle way to do it. Yeah. Then maybe, you know, study more like Amy does. And some, it just, some people are, are wired more that way. And some people are wired more that they need more structure. I'm a person who needs more structure because if I start getting out of the structure element, then I just completely get off track and, and I, you know, quit doing my quiet time or, you know, I quit, I lose where I am in, in studying. And so I've got to have some sort of a plan or I will just fall apart, (laughs) but some people just do better with more freedom. So it just depends on how God has wired you, but just get in the word every day and be studying the word in context. You know, if, like Amy said, she doesn't maybe necessarily read uh, chapters consecutively but as long as you're whatever you're reading you're reading it in context that's that's really what you want to go for there and you want to have your time with the lord in the word and also with prayer. So that's Amen. what I man. And and like you, Michelle, if I'm teaching something, I'm actually going to be studying that all through the week. So <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it, it's good to be able to do that as well, to be able to um, exposit. And um, I, I just uh, strongly recommend also uh, G3 has the, the conference that Michelle and I went to, the workshop, the expository yes. teaching workshop. And uh, that really helped me uh, pull out uh, what uh, is, you know, the jewels of each passage that we've read. So put a link to that in the show notes as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think, you know, this is a good place to wrap up for this episode of Glad You Asked. And uh, you know what? We want to just thank you so much to Melanie, a new patron, and uh, Rhonda for donating on PayPal. And if you'd like to support us through PayPal or Patreon like Melanie and Rhonda, uh, just go and click on our support tab on our website, a awordfitlyspoken.life. And uh, you can check out all of our other resources while you're there. And until next time, remember that scripture is sufficient for all of our questions about life and godliness and walk worthy. Mm-hmm.